We are beginning a sermon series this week on the scripture passages from the first letter of John in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, you find these letters right before Revelation at the end of the Bible. Some say that the actual disciple who wrote the gospel of John wrote these letters, but I happen to think it was a disciple of the disciple. Someone who knew John's gospel well and loved that particular version of good news. The gospel of John and the first letter of John share many of the same words. They share many of the same themes, like the phrase, in the beginning, in the beginning was the word, and the idea that the word was life. Also, the image of the disciples seeing and hearing and touching the resurrected Christ, the idea of sin, and the image of light and darkness. These letters were written to a community that gathered around the good news of the Gospel of John. You know, this is the Gospel that scholar Alexander John Shia says is set in a garden. The garden is clearly evident in the prologue of the Gospel of John that invokes the creation story. And it's also evident in the resurrection scene that takes place in a garden, at a garden tomb. It is a good time to be gardening. <laughs> Chef Colin is gardening. I'm gardening. So let's do a little spiritual gardening together. Hear these words from the first letter of John. I'm going to begin with verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen. My New Testament professor imagined that the three letters of John were sent at the same time to the same place, kind of like as a packet. So the third letter of John, he said, was an endorsement of the messenger that carried the packet. 
and the second letter of John was a cover letter to the community, and then the first letter of John was the meat of the thing, the sermon, the homily, what was really important about the packet. We don't have an address on this thing. We don't know who the recipient was to be, which makes it very different from the letters of Paul in the New Testament. First, John is quoted for the first time by Polycarp in about the year 117. Polycarp lived in Smyrna in Asia Minor. He was an early church father. He was a saint of the church and even one of the first martyrs. He was a disciple of the disciple John. With Polycarp in Asia Minor and tradition being that the apostle John retired to Ephesus, of Asia Minor and spent his latter years there, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and maybe even Mary Magdala. Tradition is that Mary Magdala taught in Ephesus. So I like the idea that this packet of letters was circulated around the Christian communities of Asia Minor that sprung up around Jesus' disciples. Those who were fascinated by the very stories of the individuals who saw and heard and touched the resurrected word of life. You know, I think there's gold in this letter. And it is found in the form of advice about how to live out the faith when things get tough. All three of the letters mention some kind of conflict or false teaching or division among believers The suffering that the recipients uh, experience is an inside job. It's believers on believers. And the letter then is what can be done about this kind of suffering. The letter values clarity of theology. Simple belief is no longer enough for Christians. Content of belief has become important. Now, I think this, this is true. Content of belief matters. It matters because it fuels our actions. It determines how we live, how we treat others, how we see the world, how we react to the world, and what we prioritize. And along with theology, in this first letter of John, there is this um, where the rubber meets the road kind of wisdom, kind of advice. This is how you should live out your faith. So based on a strong foundation of clear beliefs, this is how you move from believing in the resurrection to being the resurrection. Moving from believing in the resurrection to being the resurrection. The first and maybe most important image of being resurrection is found in this first chapter of the first letter. And I think I can sum it up as the priority of imperfect community, as in not perfect, imperfect community. We need one another, and we can expect that our togetherness will be difficult at times. This is imperfect community. So we commit as Christians to sitting shoulder to shoulder with one another as followers of Jesus the Christ, but sometimes we have to sit six feet away from each other, right? Sometimes we have to live stream. Sometimes we can't be here, and all of that's okay. All of that's okay. All of the flaws and disappointments are expected in a Christian community, 
um, and in a Christian relationship. They're worth the relationship. The mistakes and the flaws are worth the relationship. Several times in our passage this morning, the word fellowship is mentioned. In verse 3, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And then in verse 7, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Fellowship is a, a Greek word that you probably know. The Greek word is koinonia. Paul uses it a lot, but not John. Fellowship, this is a rare sighting of fellowship in the Johannine letters. Koinonia means active participation. It means partnership. It means joint ownership. And when John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, wrote about this particular letter in the New Testament, he said, Christian fellowship is the apparent aim of the letter. Happy and holy communion of the faithful with God. So the scripture passage claims that there's a tell, there's a marking, there's, there's a sign that you and I can see, that we can hear, that we can even feel on someone who has happy and holy communion with God. It's the quality of their relationship with other people. That's the tell of a true Christian. First John says, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And another version of this particular verse says, if we walk in the light, God himself being the light, we also experience a shared life. We experience a shared life with one another. So people who value other people, people who treat others with kindness, with dignity, with respect, aren't just good people. Their compassion is fueled. Their compassion is fueled by the quality of relationship they have with God. It's true for all of us. I don't know about your house, but in my house this weekend, we're following the Masters Golf Tournament. Very important, that green jacket, right? Yeah. I learned this year as I was watching other people watch the Masters Golf Tournament that the green jacket was first awarded in 1949 to Sam Sneed. The tradition is that the winner who is awarded the green jacket, the winner of the tournament, at the end of the tournament, keeps it in his closet for a year. He takes it and keeps it in his closet for a year, and then he returns it to Augusta National the next year, where they then keep it for him, and he wears it anytime he's on the course. Not for applause, not so people know he's a winner, at least not initially. Initially, the green jacket was worn so that people at the tournament can identify reliable sources of information. You know, ask the guy in the bright green coat. He knows what he's talking about on this course. It's the same with spirituality. It is. It's the kind eyes. It's the laughter it's the ability to stop what you're doing to help someone in need. That's the green jacket of faith. It identifies you as a reliable source of information about God. Those who partner with other people are the very same people who partner with God. Now, I don't know if you picked up on this, but sin 
is also mentioned in this particular scripture passage. Just as much as fellowship is this concept of sin, the two concepts seem to get equal time, equal air time. In verse 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. In verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And then uh, at the beginning of chapter 2, I am writing these things so that you may not sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate. Lisa Sharon Harper is an author and a teacher, and she says that she was taught as a child that sin is missing the mark of perfection within yourself. Many of us were taught that. It's a very Greek understanding that perfection can exist within us, but it completely overlooks the Hebrew roots of our faith. The Hebrew concept of perfection is right relatedness. It's an overwhelming sense of wellness. You know, Jesus in the Gospels says to his disciples, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And another way that that is translated is be merciful. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. So missing the mark of perfection, otherwise known as sin, most most often happens between us. Relationship with other people, it can happen in our relationships with ourselves as well. But I believe that a major mistake of the church is focusing on making individual people perfect. Talk about missing the mark. It's not going to happen. We're human. We're imperfect. And 1 John reminds us that we can't call one another to individual perfection. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, is how the letter puts it. We are not to demand perfection from one another or to demand perfection from ourselves. Instead, a Christian community would do best to teach people how to clean up their messes. Accountability and forgiveness and vulnerability. Because dealing with sin involves restoring relationship. Chris Estes pointed me to the big book this week when we were talking about this passage to step 10, which sounds a little like this, continue to take personal inventory that involves setting right new mistakes as we go along, watching for selfishness and dishonesty, resentment and fear when they crop up, ask God to remove them, discuss them with somebody immediately, make amends, then turn your thoughts to someone you can help. The priority of valuing and living in an imperfect community, we need it. We need imperfect community. Our souls are made for belonging. We need to cut each other a break. In the book Immortal Diamond, Richard Rohr wrote, Sin is the cozy image of ourselves as individual and autonomous. Jesus was like us in all ways except sin. He never believed the lie of separation. I buy into the lie of separation all the time. My son Daniel and I last night got to laughing about a description of a dog that's up for adoption named Prancer. (laughs) 
Prancer was fostered by a woman for several months and, she, months, and she continues to put him up for adoption, but this is her latest post. I've tried for the last several, several months to make this dog sound palatable. The problem is he's not. There's not a big market for neurotic, man-hating, animal-hating, children-hating dogs. <laughs> this dog is 50% hate and 50% tremble. <laughs> His first week with us, he was too terrified to have a personality. I liked him better that way. <laughs> I am convinced at this point he's not a real dog, but a vessel for a traumatized Victorian child that now haunts our home. <laughs> Creative, huh? That's good writing. <clears throat> Can you hear it, though? <laughs> there is in that post layer upon layer upon layer of otherness and separation to the point, actually, where it's funny and the dog is precious and people are fighting to adopt him. We can see the ridiculousness of it. But uh, it's not just chihuahuas, we do this too. <laughs> we do this to one another as well. You are other from, from God. Or we say, you are other from me. Or I am separate from God. Rohr wrote, Jesus never believed the lie of separation. He never believed the lie of separation. He said, without hesitation, I and the Father are one. And that made Jesus unique. And that made Jesus the ultimate model for us. When people said to Jesus, when we said to Jesus, you are not God, he said, I am. I sure am. When we said to Jesus, you are not one of us, he said, I am. I certainly am even to the point of death. Jesus shows us the way through the lie of separation to communion with God and with other people. This week I, I heard Krista Tippett interview a man named Brian Dorries. He is the co-founder of the Theater of War Productions. And the Theater of War Productions is a public health project that places ancient stories, ancient texts like Greek tragedies or even the book of Job in front of an audience of people to be in dialogue about that theater. Dorries tells a story of a conversation he had with an audience of American soldiers in Germany after a production. He asked the audience, well, why do you think that Sophocles wrote this play about a warrior who takes his own life after losing his best friend in battle and being betrayed by a commanding officer? A soldier cried out from the back of the room, because it boosts morale. It boosts morale? What do you mean? A story about a warrior who takes his own life? who loses his best friend in battle, who is betrayed by his commanding officer? The soldier said, yeah, it's the truth. And it's not being whitewashed. 
Terrible suffering exists. Much of it we do to one another. There's power in acknowledging it. And there's power in knowing that we're not alone. My favorite Brian Dory's quote is this. You are not alone in this room. And you are not alone across time. I like it because I think it's true. You are not alone in this room, and you are not alone across time. Dories can call that the theater of war, but I call it church. Would you pray with me? Come Holy Spirit, live in us and in this very church. Would you breathe acceptance and belonging into each heart? Remind us, Spirit, that we belong to one another and we belong to you. We are a people who seek to be the resurrection in imperfect times and often in imperfect ways. But you are our guide. And so we breathe you in, and we reach out in mercy. Amen.